She wanted National Velvet and she got The Exorcist. Good evening. Welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall. And on this winter's night, we are talking about The Exorcist. We have already done an episode about exorcisms, which I encourage you to listen to. Specifically, it's about how they're easier to get than you might think. But this week, our episode is about the whole over-the-top cultural phenomenon that was The Exorcist. First, the novel by William Peter Blatty, and then the movie by William Friedkin, which it is pretty safe to say changed us in more ways than we perhaps wanted to admit. My amazing guest for this episode is Marlena Williams, who is the author of the new essay collection, Night Mother, A Personal and Cultural History of the Exorcist. You may or may not know, The Exorcist came out December 26, 1973. Incredible timing, in my opinion. So we are now celebrating its half-century anniversary And this is a movie that, as you might imagine, is also very important to me in my life, in my ongoing obsession with the satanic panic, a.k.a. the reason I began doing this show at all in many ways. The Exorcist is famously a horror movie. We'll be talking about its content and its themes in some detail, so that may or may not be the right speed for you today. But I also want to make sure you know that you don't have to be into horror movies. You don't have to ever want to see this movie to be interested in its themes. And I think often having that friend who tells you about the media you don't want to consume so that you can learn about what people are thinking about is fun and useful. And I would love to be that friend for you. And if you still want some more conventional Christmas fare, we have got a You're Wrong About audiobook original of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, over on Patreon and Apple Plus subscriptions. I read it myself, uh, and I had a really great time. So if you still want to roast some chestnuts and listen to something about Tiny Tim, we've got you covered there too. So thank you so much for being here. Happy New Year in advance. Happy travels. Happy long walks. Thank you for spending the year with us. Thank you for everything. Welcome to your Wrong About Christmas Edition, and we are talking, of course, today about The Exorcist, and we are talking about The Exorcist with Marlena Williams. Hi. Hello, hello. <laughs> hello. <sighs> I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy we're talking about demonic possession. It just feels so right. It really does, yes. The Exorcist is a uh, low-key Christmas movie. <laughs> And today there are so many demon movies that are really a staple of the horror genre, and I think they're all descended from The Exorcist in one way or another, but none of them are trying to get Oscars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what makes The Exorcist a really interesting movie because it's a horror movie, but it's also kind of a product of this early 1970s new Hollywood filmmaking. Hmm. And I don't think William Friedkin, the director, or William Peter Blatty, the screenwriter, really even envisioned it as a horror movie. Hmm. I mean, that sounds crazy, but... But there you go. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think William Friedkin wanted to make a movie that was going to be just as good as anything Coppola and Scorsese were doing, you know? And William Peter Blatty wanted to make a movie that was going to 
convert some people. So, <laughs> you know, it's a horror movie, but <laughs> the intentions behind it were a little more than that, I guess. I also, so in, in terms of, you know, why, why we're talking to you here on this beautiful Christmas Exorcist episode, what is your relationship to The Exorcist? And, and have you written a book about it recently by chance? <laughs> so, yes, uh, my relationship uh, with The Exorcist really stems from my mother's relationship with the movie. So my mom saw the movie when it premiered in 1973. She was quite con- she was raised quite conservative quite Catholic. And so her mom was just like, don't see this, you know, sacrilegious mm-hmm. movie. And of course, everyone was going to see it. So my mom snuck out of the house and saw it with her friend and was really, really deeply, deeply terrified by it. You know, I don't know if she was one of the people who was, you know, crying or fainting or any of that, but mm-hmm. uh, she was so scared of it that, you know, 20 years later when she had me, she was telling me the story about how scared she was. Yeah, The Exorcist was always just a story she would tell me. And, you know, I accidentally saw a really short clip from the movie when I was a kid, probably I was six or seven. It really freaked me out too, really messed me up. I also did not sleep for days on end. And yeah, it really um, disturbed me, even though I just saw like a 10 second clip. And so after my mom died when I was 18, I kind of wanted to look back on the movie and try to understand why exactly it scared her so much, why exactly it scared me so much, and why exactly it like unsettled and scared the culture so much. So I did write a book about it. (laughs) And the book is Night Mother, A Personal and Cultural History of the Exorcist. And it's such a beautifully written book as well. And I feel like that's such a big part of the experience is that you're not just getting into the history and ideas and kind of sociology behind it, but really... It's almost like how people, I feel like, kind of forget that Elvis was a really good singer. Like, The the Exorcist is really a beautifully made, beautifully crafted movie, and I think that's a big part of what makes it so unsettling and pervasive. And I feel like you've written a piece of art to answer the original piece of art. It seems like everyone has a story about it. I'm actually curious about what your relationship to The Exorcist is. But from writing this book and from talking to people about this book and, like, doing a little bit of press around the book... Everyone has a story about when they saw The Exorcist yeah. or why they've never seen The Exorcist, you know? Well, it's so it's funny also to think about my relationship to this movie through my mom, because I feel like there mm-hmm. is such a sort of often like kind of a matrilineal thing in terms of horror media where like pieces of media become like rites of passage that like you're warned against. But then also you sort of measure yourself against your mother by experiencing them. And that my mom, being the very contrary person that she is, I feel like she did not find The Exorcist particularly scary, except for the scene where Regan, when they're doing all these tests to try and rule out demons and like determine what else it can be, goes in for these very painful, invasive medical tests, including like something where they draw a bunch of blood. I think they might do a spinal tap. And like, that was the part, that was the only part of the movie that bothered her. (laughs) Mm. Well, apparently that part of the movie was one of the scenes that actually is noted for disturbing a lot of people, which is interesting because we assume it's, you know, the head spinning around, the projectile vomiting, the masturbating with a crucifix but a lot of people reported being very very but hey some of us do that by choice now that's millennial <laughs> <Yeah>. culture <laughs> right and what scares us perhaps is 
there's something wrong with your body. You don't know what it is. And you have to just yeah. submit yourself to medicine, which can be quite a barbaric, brutal, you know, process. And they do the classic like doctor understatement thing too. I love this. They always do this. <laughs> yeah. where they're like, you're going to feel a little pinch. And mm-hmm. then they plunge a giant needle into her yeah. neck. And it's like, I think that it might be more than like, I'm sure they used a local. <laughs> I hope they used a local, but like, it's come on, you guys don't lie to the girl. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Right. And I think, you know, in our like the cultural understanding of the exorcist, you know, if you haven't seen it before, or you haven't seen it in a while, is that it's this movie about a 12-year-old little girl who gets possessed by the devil. But, you know, there's a lot more going on in the movie than that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the medical aspect. There's the parent-child aspect. There's the crisis of faith aspect that the the priests are going through. Yeah, the hot priest aspect. Yeah, definitely. It must be said. <laughs> yes. Pretty hot priest. Yeah, and, the, <laughs> and Max von Sydow, who plays the other priest, there's Father Karras, who's the hot priest I think you're referring to, and then Max mm-hmm. von Sydow is the slightly older, kind of more haggard exorcist, but he's pretty hot too, Yeah, without all the... The added old rose makeup that he's wearing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And so maybe that's actually a good, good like place to start, like the overall narrative of The Exorcist. Yeah. I would love that. Because the exorcism that inspired the exorcist was actually of a little boy, not of a little girl. Which is really interesting as a change. But yeah, so I think, is do you want to kind of get into the narrative of the, of the exorcist? I would love that, yeah. And for us to maybe start with, you know, the book comes out and... I've read the book, and I have to say, I found it to be quite bad. Yeah. <laughs> but what what are your thoughts? On yes. So I also agree that the book isn't that good. The book, you know, it's been several years since I've read it. I remember the book being pretty similar to the movie. Yeah. Probably because William Peter Blatty wrote the novel and he wrote the screenplay. So, you know, he didn't want to change his masterpiece too much. (laughs) When does this book come out? And like, is it part of the promotion for it that like it's based on a true story? Yeah. So the book comes out in 1971, I believe, written by William Peter Blatty and inspired by a story he read in the Washington Post in 1949. Um, The headline of that is, Priest Frees Mount Rainier Boy Reportedly Held in Devil's Grip. So, Mm. you know, this is the story of a possession in a major (laughs) newspaper. The word reportedly is really doing a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, well, yeah. So the first sentence actually is kind of funny. It says, in what is perhaps one of the most remarkable experiences of its kind in recent religious history, a 14-year-old Mount Rainier boy has been freed by a Catholic priest of possession by the devil. Catholic sources reported yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay. (laughs) Whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that article, um, you know, it recounts this story of alleged possession. It's pretty boilerplate possession, if you ask me. I mean, I haven't read <laughs> too much about, like, the history of, you know, stories of possession. But, you know, it's the story of a young boy living in a suburb of Washington, D.C., who slowly... Um, is overtaken by the devil. It began with his parents hearing like scratching and dripping Mm. sounds in the attic. Um, But they dismissed that as 
it was rats. But then, you know, the signs of something else going on just got worse and worse and worse. He started screaming. The little boy started screaming, cursing. I guess he, you know, had a knowledge of Latin, even though he'd never taken a Latin class, Mm. talking a lot about priests and nuns having sex. And like, was this child Catholic, by the way? I believe they were Lutheran. Okay. Because if he were Catholic, I would be like, no knowledge of Latin. If he's going to church, he knows at least (laughs) Latin. (laughs) True. I don't know how much Latin is in Lutheran masses, Mm. but um, he, you know, the way the possessions typically go starts out, you know, maybe there's some other explanation for it, such as rats in the attic, but eventually more supernatural things start happening. Reports of, you know, mattresses flying across the room, an armchair just toppling over for no reason, these gross, foul odors filling the bedroom. Well, it is an adolescent boy in there, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know, gross, foul odors, the cursing, screaming, talking about sex between priests and nuns, you know. Mm. There's so much behavior you can't get away with unless you're possessed is one of the problems, I think. (laughs) Very good point, yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so like... At first, the parents, you know, after accepting that maybe something bad was going on with their son, took him to the Georgetown Hospital and the hospital in St. Louis where they had some family. And then after those doctors couldn't have any, didn't provide any explanation for what was going on, they turned to a Lutheran minister who tried to figure it out. And eventually the Lutheran minister was like, I can't handle this. You need to bring in the big guns. You need to bring in a Catholic. So they consulted a Catholic priest (laughs) who apparently was successful. And eventually after two months of constant like work with the boy was able to free him of the devil. And so that's like the basic story that was reported Mm -hmm. in the Washington Post and that William Peter Blatty read Hmm. when he was uh, living in Washington, D.C. in 1949 attending Georgetown. Wow. And then he just like kind of kept it in mind for like 20 years, I guess. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He was Catholic. So he was born in New York to two um, parents who were Lebanese immigrants. And he was born in 1929. His dad left when he was eight years old. And he was raised by his mother, who was a very, very devout Catholic. Mm. And raised in what he calls comfortable destitution. Uh, he says his, they uh, made their money um, from his mom selling jelly in the streets. Mm. But yeah, he didn't do anything with it right away. Mm. He kind of had like a, a bit of a like quixotic 20s and 30s. He was in the Air Force for a little bit, working for the Psychological Warfare Division, which I don't really oh. know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what they do. Like, I guess it's spies. I mean, the exorcist is you know, some sort of psychological warfare as well. Like that would teach you how to write a horror novel, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I don't know, the writing to me is just like, it's clunky in a way that makes it hard to get through. But like the basic premise of the book is like, clearly there's something about it. And it's always so interesting when when something comes out that like people disagree on like having quality or being any good or like, you know, you see pundits, I think, often describing media like this in the tone of like, oh, no, it's embarrassing that this is what so many people are responding to. I don't like this. But like, all we can do is accept that like Fifty Shades of Grey, the Macarena, Tamagotchis. God, I loved my Tamagotchi. I raised a Tamagotchi to maturity. Wow. And I feel proud of that still. But like, you know, the stuff that comes along where it's like, 
there's just like some kind of primal pull towards it that we just have to accept. Like it really feels like the exorcist is one of those things. Right. Yeah. He knew what was going to strike a chord with people, perhaps. And maybe because it had struck a chord with him, because I think any story you remember for that long, it's like it sticks to you in a way that means that maybe it's going to be sticky for other people. Yeah. Well, yeah, it must have been because, yeah, I mean, it stayed in his mind for literally 20 years. I guess he moved to Los Angeles and wanted, it seemed, to be working in Hollywood or at least working as a writer. Um, but he had to work, you know, full time in another job. And he tells the story of going onto a game show called uh, You Bet Your Life. Mm. Well, it all went very well for um, William Peter Blatty because he won $10,000. Oh, my God. Which is how much money back then? Enough for him to quit working and devote his life to writing. And if you won $10,000 today, you'd be like, great. Now I get to pay off the debt from getting four stitches. <laughs> yeah. So this was pretty, I think it was a lot of money for, you know, 60s. And so he starts writing, writing full time, writing screenplays, writing novels. Um, I think everything he's written is really funny because he really likes putting punctuation marks in the titles of his <laughs> movies and books. Um, his memoir is called Which Way to Mecca Jack? Question mark. He wrote a novel <laughs> called John Goldfarb, comma, Please Come Home, exclamation point. That's another screenplay called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? Question mark. So, you know, they're very declarative, <laughs> inquisitive titles. I, I wish that The Exorcist was like, get out of her, comma, demon boy, exclamation point. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they're mostly like comedic spy thrillers in there. I think he wrote one of the Pink Panther movies. So he's pretty yeah. successful, but he's not having like any runaway hits. Huh. But then in 1967, his mom dies and he was very, mm. very close to his mom all throughout mm. his life. And this kind of throws him into a crisis of faith and like a period of reflecting on his past. And for whatever reason, he thinks about that Washington Post story he read in mm. 1949. And, you know, I've been thinking about it. For years and years, but after my mom died, he he says he finally decided to turn it into a book. Hmm. So he writes The Exorcist. The Exorcist novel was originally published to like very sluggish sales. Like no one really was buying it. I think there's some stories of bookstores returning it because no one was buying it. But then he got invited on the Dick Cavett show. So he wasn't even supposed to be on it, but a guest dropped out. Hmm. William Peter Blatty was able to fill in. And then one of the other um, guests on the show, Robert Shaw, Shakespearean actor, but also played Quint in Jaws. Perfect combination of resume and items. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was so drunk uh, when he showed up at the soundstage that either he went on and it was very, very brief and they told him to get off or he mm -hmm. was, they, they didn't bring him on at all. And wow. so William Peter Blatty essentially had 45 minutes to go oh on a monologue God. about his book and about demonic possession. And after that episode, the book became a runaway hit, sold 13 million copies. Oh my it was optioned for a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it says like everything about what a monoculture with three channels we used to have that like, Robert Shaw gets drunk and suddenly the entire world is different. Totally. I know. <laughs> also, you know, he was a really Catholic man. And he when he wrote The Exorcist, he definitely viewed it as like a story that was supposed to show people that God was a real 
and living entity. Also, if I were him and I'd had like a couple of miracles now, I'd be like, hey, I really think that this book that like God wants people to read this. Yeah. And so he, you know, after the massive success of the book, he signs a contract with Warner Brothers to write the screenplay, but also to be uh, the producer of the movie. Uh Oh, and it all happened really, really quickly. I think like (laughs) the book came out in 1971 and then by 1972, they're starting production of The Exorcist. Hmm. So, you know, maybe to talk about a little bit about how William Friedkin comes into the scene. Yeah, please. Yeah. So because William Friedkin did not like the original screenplay. The original screenplay Hmm. apparently was 226 pages long. (laughs) Oh my God. And basically like in screenplays, a page equals about a minute of screen time. Is that right? So yeah, Mm -hmm. so it's a mere three hours and 46 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it was like a definitely a case of William Peter Blatty wanting to make sure that his novel was, or that the movie was like very loyal to his novel. But then William Friedkin comes in and there's the story of him reading the screenplay and just drawing an X through all the scenes that he thought were unnecessary. Um, <laughs> just the the little like ego wars that go into this kind of thing too are like devastating if you're involved in them and very funny to read about decades after the fact. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, William Friedkin, he was fresh off his Oscar win for The French Connection, um, was kind of you know, a young hotshot. I don't think he was their first choice as a director for the movie. I think they approached Arthur Penn and Mike Nichols Hmm. and a few other directors. God, Mike Nichols would have been incredible. Yeah. And the reason Mike Nichols passed, they say, is because he didn't want to be dealing with a child actor. Yeah. And he didn't want the fate of the movie dependent on a child actor, which actually is reasonable. It's a good point. Yeah. Like this is this seems like such an atypical shoot as well. Like the (laughs) and the Mm -hmm. kinds of things that you have to have a kid do or say and also like it I mean to clarify what Friedkin's reputation is at this point like it feels like the reputation the French Connection had was as like that I I fully believe the French Connection is like one of the movies that film bros are actually right about which sucks but it does happen sometimes <laughs> and and that this was like that he's like an edgy young guy basically is that correct Yes, yes, yeah. He was born in Chicago. He was also mostly raised by a single mother. Hmm. But uh, William Friedkin got his start as a documentary film director. So like, Hmm. he yeah, he got to start working at a Chicago TV station, Hmm. and then produced several like fairly well respected documentaries, um, one called The People versus Paul Crump, Hmm. uh, which is about a black man on death row for Hmm. murder that you know, was the result of a robbery gone awry. But then obviously he works his way into Hollywood and yeah, has this great success with the French connection and does kind of have this reputation of having a bit of a temper, being a bit of a loud mouth, um, being a little bit abrasive. But I think confidence in Friedkin <laughs> at this time was strong, but also, you know, it did turn out to be quite a disastrous production in a lot of mm. ways. I mean, not disastrous. I feel like that's maybe too strong of a word, but well. But it is, I think it's important to challenge this idea of like, I think we really do see movies as a success as long as they make enough of a profit for the studio to feel justified in the choices they made. But really, like the question, and it's a very timely question, is like, at what cost, right? And at what human cost? Mm, right. And can you tell us a precy of what the movie is about? I feel like probably writing right. this book, like you can give... It's like the better you know something, the faster you can describe it. So I feel like you might be able to do one of the more succinct exorcist summaries that can be done. 
You could just say it's a movie about the possession of a 12-year-old little girl who's living in, with her single mom in Georgetown. Her mom, mm-hmm. Chris McNeil, is a very successful actress who's in Georgetown filming a movie. And then it's also the story of the two priests who eventually are called uh, into the scene to exercise the demon from the young girl's body. And it's yeah. about, you know, one of those priests, Father Karras, is kind of in the middle of a really intense crisis of faith he's doubting his decision to join the priesthood and Mm. uh halfway through the movie his mom dies and he's kind of thrust into grief and guilt after the death of his mother and his belief in god and his you know his trust in religion is perhaps bolstered by the uh, possession and his role in the exorcism yeah and that it's a about You know, a mother and daughter who have this really lovely, sweet relationship that we get to see a lot of. And then, you know, and then a demon comes along merely because Regan found a Ouija board and decided to start playing with it. And I, (laughs) I, I, boy, I would love to know how the Ouija, how the Milton Bradley people have felt about all of this for the last 50 years. It's been, I'm sure it's been quite a ride. (laughs) Yeah. So... I never feel like the Ouija board is what caused it, you know? Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel like that's something that Vladdy and Freed can put in to have a logical explanation, you know? Well, and it, it fits in with, like, the kind of the media of the 70s. It's like, you know, all this Age of Aquarius stuff is really opening us up to Satan's rule and the idea of, like, seeing a Ouija board as, like, a sort of paranormal witchcrafty tool of divination right but I also have like a mental image in my head of like Dwight Schrute being like you know what I think caused the exorcist menses well (laughs) (laughs) I think it's certainly possible to interpret the whole movie as (laughs) demonic possession called by menses (laughs) right because I mean there is you know I feel like this is a theme we'll be talking about the whole time but the idea of like parents feeling they don't recognize their adolescent daughters and it's like no that's not the demon that's just your kid (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. totally yeah I think this movie is very infused with like a panic around young girls you know as they turn into young women so yeah so okay so we get to adapt this exciting novel about an adolescent girl who you know, is possessed by a demon and goes through all kinds of physical transformation because of that and the war waged for her very soul. Just a walk in the park film to make, really. (laughs) Right. And, you know, the success of this story depends largely on finding the right little girl to play this role. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, when we're talking about the production, the film's premiere and release, and then its aftermath, I think it could be kind of cool to like talk about it through the lens of Linda Blair's experience. Because I do feel as if, you know, her character, Reagan, is definitely the most memorable, iconic part of the movie. But Linda Blair is an actress. She's kind of obscured by this role. And this role that she played when she was 12 years old pretty much decided everything about her life that came Mm -hmm. after. So I don't know. I feel (laughs) I feel a deep personal need to like tell her story and maybe like 
correct some of the narrative that I think floats around about Linda Blair that was floating around at the time when the movie Hmm. was filmed and released, but also that I think lingers to this day. Yeah. So she was born um, in 1959 in St. Louis on 123 Hollywood Lane. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But eventually her family moved from St. Louis to Connecticut. And when she was six years old, her mom decided that, you know, she should start modeling Uh, She was in some small roles in movies and like a shortly lived soap opera. Hmm. The way she's spoken about it, she's kind of said, you know, yeah, I thought being an actress, the idea of being an actress was really, really exciting. But I also would have been fine being a veterinarian or a jockey. She really loved (laughs) animals when she was a Mm -hmm. kid. And she said, you know, if I am going to be an actress, uh, I want to be in movies about, you know, girls and their dogs or girls and their horses like Lassie Mm -hmm. or Black Beauty. That was kind of her idea of what would happen to her life if she became an actress. She wanted National Velvet and she got The Exorcist. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So instead, her mom brings her in to an audition for The Exorcist um, with uh, William Friedkin. And... Friedkin had really, really been struggling to cast the right little girl for this film. Mm. You know, it is a tricky role to cast. Mm -hmm. You definitely want someone who seems stable and grounded. You know, he didn't want to be responsible for, like, traumatizing a a young little girl. Like, I do Mm. think he was aware of that. But you also kind of have to find a kid who's somewhat knowledgeable, who, (laughs) you know, is mature. Yeah. And I guess now is a good time to pause and just say, William Friedkin is, like... (laughs) he's not the most reliable narrator I feel Mm. like I think he's a man who just kind of talks and whatever he's saying or thinking or wants to say in the the moment he says it (laughs) you know he's very he's very brassy he gives the guy in a bar interview style so you know he says that Linda Blair came into the audition room and he kind of goes over the script with her and her mom and they get to the infamous crucifix masturbation scene And he says, Linda, do you understand what Reagan is doing here? And Linda says, yeah, like very eagerly. She's masturbating. And and William Friedkin nods and says, and do you know what masturbating is? And apparently she responded, yeah, it's like jerking off. (laughs) And (laughs) he said, and have you ever masturbated before? Which is like. Hmm. No, no, thank you. Yeah. And but apparently she responded, sure, of course I have. Hasn't everyone? So that's the story he tells about what inspired him to cast Linda. She has said she didn't know what masturbation was at the time. And certainly when you're like a a middle school aged kid, like I certainly remember spending a lot of time pretending I understood more adult concepts than I actually did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe she, yeah, vaguely understood what it was enough to say, sure. Yeah. Gosh, the ethics of filmmaking of any sort are just, I think, are so complicated. And it, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you would reasonably go about that. Cause she's, I mean, this movie comes out in 1973. So she's 14 when it's in theaters. Right. I Mm -hmm. mean, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, take that story with a grain of salt. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, the story seems believable to me up to the point where he asks her, have you ever masturbated? Like, that seems yeah. so inappropriate. And like with her mom right yeah. there with her. Right. But, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I think that we have 
as a public, like a relationship to performers where we feel like their mistreatment is less meaningful because we treat fame or being remembered for something as a liquid asset of some kind when in fact it can prevent you from getting your life together. Right. Especially when you're so young and, you know, she probably only had minimal say about wanting to be in this movie in the first place, you know, or fully even understanding what this was going to do to her life and her career. Yeah. Maybe I'll just touch really quickly on some of the other people they cast. Ellen Burstyn was cast as the mother, Chris McNeil, Max von Sydow. We've already talked about him, was cast as Father Mirren, um, the priest who's like a more experienced exorcist. Mm -hmm. Jason Miller was cast as Father Karras, who's the younger exorcist, or yeah, the younger priest exorcist Mm -hmm. having a crisis of faith. Um, So those are the main roles. Mm -hmm. So once they're all cast, production begins August 14th, 1972 in Georgetown, um, but mostly in New York um, Mm. on a soundstage in Hell's Kitchen. Mm. Hmm. Friedkin was really adamant that when he was making the movie that all the special effects would be live. You know, there would be no trickery. There would be no um, like fake obstacles. He wanted all to be real effects. So he hired Dick Smith, the the now famous makeup artist, to like Mm. create a dummy head for Reagan when her head spins around and does the full 360. He also hired Marcel Verkater as a special effects supervisor. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the um, the tough things that happened to both Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn on set, and you can kind of trace them back to Marcel, mm. he was pretty ruthless in um, some of the contraptions he designed to mm. uh, achieve some of these special effects. And they actually caused like legitimate injuries in people so like there's a scene where linda blair is strapped onto the bed Mm -hmm. she's on the bed and she you can't tell her but she's strapped into some type of contraption that Mm -hmm. that is making her body just like thrash around wildly and so marcel was controlling that off off screen and she had no control over what was happening Mm. he was just using essentially a remote control to make her thrash around and she's Mm -hmm. linda blair has told the story um she says when i'm yelling make it stop make it stop that was the dialogue but it was truly happening i'm screaming and i'm thinking i'm the best actress in history (laughs) (laughs) so from this she injures her back And they have Mm -hmm. to bring a massage therapist and, like, a doctor on set to, like, care for her. But the story that Marcel Vucater tells about that, and again, this is another guy just kind of talking himself up and, like, telling a wild story. But he says of the contraption he made for Linda Blair, I was the devil. I had her strapped in there, and I was throwing her back and forth. When does the acting start and the realism begin? To say she's being possessed and thrown and picked up, jiggled and bumped, and to get that whore and not going too far, not to hurt her or bruise her. Up to a certain point, it's for fun. Then it starts to get more violent. And she starts to say, okay, I've had enough. Now that's when you start. Uh, (laughs) So these were kind of the type of men who were making this movie and that Linda Blair was, you know, subjected to. And there is like such a rich tradition of men tormenting women and being like, I'm making a horror movie. And it's like, okay, if you're hiring actors, you need to just like give them a nice trailer, give them some Pepperidge Farm cookies, take good care of them. Don't make them work crazy hours, et cetera, et cetera. And then, like, let them act. Mm-hmm. You hired them to be actors. 
So you don't actually have to like <laughs> whip them around and cause injuries to them. Just like it, it, let your performers perform. That's what I think. Yeah, right. I feel like that was the attitude of Kubrick with um, Shelley Duvall and The Shining. And Oh my God, completely. Yeah, yeah. And you know... <laughs> Linda Blair, the way she talks about the movie, seems the filming of the movie, it seems really real to me that she would talk about it this way because she was a young girl. So her memory, mm -hmm. like I couldn't like narrate for you a month long, multi-month long period of what I was going through when I was 12. You know, my memories mm -hmm. would be blurred. I'd tell the story differently one day, tell it another mm -hmm. way another day based upon how I was feeling. So she right. kind of says, sometimes she says, oh, filming was a lot of fun. Everyone like was really nice to me. I learned a lot about movie making. I learned about how the cameras work. You know, I had a great time. But she's also said, you know, no one has understood how hard filming was for me. And, yeah. you know, she she's told stories about, you know, <laughs> William Freakin very famously kept the set at uh, below freezing temperatures in certain scenes to kind of mimic the chilly air. Demonic cold spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he really wanted the actor's breath to be visible on the screen. So mm -hmm. the set was freezing. There's images of Friedkin and the crew in big puffer jackets, you know, to keep themselves warm. Yeah. But Linda Blair's in a nightgown the whole time. Yeah. She's talked about uh, being terrified of the dummy made by Dick Smith of her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about it, you're a 12 year old kid. There's this dummy version of yourself you made to look like a little devil. And she had <laughs> she said that was kept in the dressing room with her every day while she was getting her makeup done. And she said, I would just be getting my makeup done, looking at the dummy in the mirror. And she said she really did not like being in its presence. <laughs> it really scared her <laughs> and freaked her out. Um, and I, it does feel like, I, I know this is like, you know, I think a very modern kind of recent concept, but it just feels like the obvious thing to do to like, try and keep people physically and mentally healthy while you're you're working with them because then and I get why that doesn't happen because it's like you're it's like you're a contractor for any other kind of a job and you have x amount of money and you're expected to generate x amount of profit and it's very easy to start you know ignoring the needs of the human beings you're working with when they seem to get in the way of that I guess yeah mm -hmm. but that's that's why we have unions there's this famous scene where Reagan is masturbating with the crucifix. Her mom walks up to her to try to stop her. And then mm -hmm. she kind of flies back, you know, some supernatural force. She fl Well, actually what happens is Reagan punches her in the face and <laughs> then she flies back. Mm -hmm. And that was a, like a, a device was designed to pull her back and make her like drag her across the floor mm -hmm. and she says Ellen Verson has said there was no padding on the floor so she was just yanked onto the hard ground and um she says she injured her like coccyx and um like had serious pain from it for like years afterwards yeah. and um <laughs> uh, William Friedkin like for years just kind of refused to acknowledge that she was injured because he's like well she was back at work the next day you know <laughs> but then but again it's like it's not like you have the freedom to choose any of this right like the reason women have this sort of very deep socialization to tolerate pain is because we have to and we're not allowed mm -hmm. to not and I would love to see what would happen if we just didn't have to do that mm, right or if we demanded to not have to do that I guess to the extent possible mm -hmm. yeah and I think also maybe at play with Ellen Burstyn 
you know, not wanting to say I have to take a couple of days off to recover or, you know, Linda Blair also getting time off to recover after she was injured is the fact that um, the production was going over schedule and over budget quite rapidly. Right. So because of someone else not knowing how to manage yeah. a shoot, you have to just tough it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, these are kind of the famous stories about the Exorcist's cursed production. But right. the studio set where they had built the replica of the Georgetown house burnt down on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. That was really, really played up in the press. And that was one of the reasons why it, you know, went so far over schedule. There was, you know, like a two week delay where they had to just completely reconstruct the whole set because because there was a fire. These are the myths that we hear about The Exorcist of, you know, the fire. I've heard stories that I, I included in the book of the sprinklers going off one night and completely dousing the entire set, you know, after they mm-hmm. had just rebuilt it all. And there was deaths, you know like peripheral deaths of people who were involved, you know, dying like shortly after they'd filmed yeah. their scenes or like... Which to be fair, two people involved in making Pretty in Pink also died during or shortly after it came out. And we don't talk about that movie being <laughs> cursed, but you know. This was something that was being, you know, regularly reported in the press before the movie even came out. Yeah. And it's just a good, and it, it makes sense how they're, you know, it makes sense that some stories become as big as they are because there's this perfect symbiosis where if you're a reporter, you're like, I get to put the devil in the headline. That'll be great. Everyone's going to love it. And as a filmmaker, you're like, yes, I'd like to do some viral marketing before that term exists. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I think there were reports in the press about all of those, you know, kind of disasters happening on set. There was also reports that Linda Blair was um, having psychotic breaks and that they needed mm. to have a therapist on set. I, that does not appear to be oh true. Oh my God, not a therapist. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Was pro- they probably actually should have had a therapist on set, but they didn't. Yeah, and also it's like, let's be concerned for her well-being, but only in a way that stigmatizes the idea of having problems of any kind. Yeah, so the movie was going over schedule and over budget. They were like, you know, so maybe he's just trying to rationalize, you know, like why it was such a disaster. You're like, we're going over budget because of the devil, all right? Exactly. Yeah. Out of my hair. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, and before this movie came out, like, you know, you couldn't bank on it being legendary in any way. It was just one of probably several devil movies that were totally slated for that period. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because after Rosemary's Baby in 1968, right, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of devil movies that came out. I think like the year before there was a possession movie about a a, a young boy who becomes possessed, Hmm. the possession of Joel Delaney. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, these stories are widely circulating in the press. And by the time it hits screens, December 26, 1973, it has its own reputation. And Hmm. you almost want to be terrified oh yeah you know you're primed to be disturbed yeah so yeah the movie hit screens in 24 theaters the day after christmas so kind of a limited release and then expanded Mm -hmm. beyond that so 1973 roe v wade had legalized abortion about a year before Mm -hmm. second wave feminism is kind of at its peak Mm. the watergate hearings were unfolding at this time America was also in the middle of the oil crisis, which 
I don't know, when I learned that this was kind of when the oil crisis was happening and when I learned that the White House was issuing these warnings to like, or issuing these recommendations, like don't put up Christmas lights this year. Oh, wow. Talk about the war on Christmas. I'm kidding. I'm obviously (laughs) kidding. (laughs) Yeah, no one could get gas. And the crisis was so bad that, yeah, the White House was saying, you know, suggestions for how to conserve energy in all of the smallest ways. And so you kind of think about the time when the Exorcist premiered the day after Christmas, and you'd had a dark Christmas without Christmas lights up in a lot of houses. (sighs) Which makes it easier for Satan to hide in the shadows. (laughs) Precisely. Um, So that was happening. And I think, you know, there was this kind of backlash to the kind of more liberal progressive movements at the end of the 60s. So, you know, I think culture at that time was still kind of reckoning with the civil rights movement and some of the racial uprisings of 1968 and the end of the 60s. Stonewall had happened in 1969. And again, we have the second wave feminist movement, women's liberation movement as like a huge, you know, conversation topic. So Hmm. there's this idea that that time in the 70s was kind of this reaction to some of the liberalism of the end of the 60s and almost like a backlash to it. And so in a way, I think this movie arrived at like this was, you know, at the perfect moment, like the culture was really primed to be terrified and unsettled by it in a lot of ways. Also because of some of the religious things that were happening in the culture, like, you know, there was a a lot of concern about church attendance dwindling. Um, Hal Lindsey's book came out that that year. I think you might know more about that than I do. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. Like, I, it's not yeah. just he's alive. It's like he's thriving. He's thriving. He's living. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Yeah, which brings me to this statement in 1972 that the Catholic Church issued. Let me, I'm going to once again reference my book. Perfect. Evil is not merely a lack of something, but an effective agent, a living spiritual being, perverted and perverting, a terrible reality. And then, you know, it kind of goes on. But it's mm-hmm. this... The church pretty much saying that evil is not an idea. It's a concrete thing that exists in like physical form in the world. Yeah, which like, what do you, what do you think of that? In a way, I suppose I agree with the idea that, you know, evil can exist in all of us. And it's, it's a, it's a Mm. real thing that everyone is capable of. It's not this like metaphysical idea about like man's battle between, you know, God and the devil. It is a real thing that takes that, that we can, you know, enact in the world. But I also think, you know, it's ridiculous that the church was warning people at this time that the devil is afoot and we should all be, (laughs) be terrified. (laughs) What do you think? Well, I mean, one thing I love about that quote is that that quote is in the opening of Michelle Remembers, and it's oh, used it as like evidence, basically, of like, you should believe this book, because look at what the Vatican said. They said evil is a reality, so therefore these very specific things did happen, and you're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like a lot of my work in the past has been kind of questioning the concept of evil, and I think what I... right something I've I've said previously and I and I think still believe is that evil is often a word for something that we can break down more and understand more deeply using other language right because it's kind of a stand-in word for like great harm or apparent indifference Mm -hmm. to harm 
I think, but the question of like where it actually comes from is really interesting and helpful. But I, I think I, but I agree with what you say, which is that like, we also, I think, and stuff like the exorcist, I think puts us in this frame of mind, have this idea of like, humanity sort of is what it is, but we can't be tempted or we can't let evil in. But what's really, what I think is more is real to me, as far as I can tell is that like, our capacity for destruction and, and harm is innate and it's a part of us as much as our capacity for good. And that that's, you know, really thought provoking and complex and scary in some ways, but liberating in others. And I think can help us feel deeply connected to sort of all of our fellow humans as people who have, you know, are, are made of the same ingredients at the end of the day. Evil in quotes, you know, being the structural thing that is like created by circumstance, you know, yeah. and it makes me think of um, James Baldwin saw The Exorcist mm. when it premiered in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> well, he hated the movie and he, you know, wrote this whole um, essay about it where he kind of says, you know, I have seen evil in this world and it doesn't look like this, you know, crazy little girl possessed by the devil. Evil looks like, yeah. you know, how we treat black people in our society, how we treat gay people yeah. in our society, how we treat women, how we treat children. I'll ask all those people what evil is. It's not just bad masturbation technique. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also the idea of it, it's like the idea of evil versus sacrilege is so interesting. You know, I remember watching Rosemary's Baby when I was about 13 and also feeling underwhelmed by it and not really getting in the moment that its strength is as a movie that like just works into you and works on you over time. Like Rosemary's Baby features an actual Time Magazine cover from 1966 where Time Magazine was like, is God dead? Which is like a fucking crazy cover to have on a magazine. But you have to think about circulation, I guess. And I remember thinking like, well, if you you have to deal with the devil impregnating you like that's obviously horrible and this is a horror movie and it's scary what they're they're showing but on the other hand I guess it does give you confirmation of the existence of God and like the thing about these movies appearing at the time that they did especially during you know and we I think have never stopped freaking out about a decline in the number of people attending church regularly and certain you know the idea of America and whether it is or isn't a Christian nation mm -hmm. but like that these movies are so interesting because they kind of inevitably reinforce the power structures we have and specifically of Catholicism yes yeah I think The Exorcist is like a very reactionary movie to the time that might mm. open up the possibility to like break up some of these you know traditional values of our country but then by the end normalcy returns you know and I think a lot about like what the horror critic Robin Wood says about mm. horror mm. as you know horror he's like the basic premise of horror is that normalcy however you read that you know typically mm. you know traditional values of the nuclear family, things like that. That's, you know, suddenly under attack. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a horror movie can be very radical if it does not allow that return to normalcy, if it kind of mm -hmm. breaks with that. And you're kind of left with this kind of uncertain notion of where do we go from here? Um, like kind of in The Omen, where The Omen ends and you're like, oh, maybe the devil wins. You know, the devil's going to become president or something. I actually don't remember. Um, <laughs> the devil's in the Carter White House. Oh, my God. And horror movies used to have happy endings is the thing. Right. And it yeah. that feels like it's related to the production code, where, like, one of the stipulations of the production code was that bad guys couldn't get away with it. 
Mm. And it feels like it's so rote now and kind of based on what happened in slashers that you have to have like the end. Or is it? Like, even if you don't want to do a sequel, you just have, it's just the law mm. now. And we didn't used to do that so much. Yeah. Right. But I think, I don't know, I feel like in the case of The Exorcist, it's a little sinister. Like, I feel like William Peter Blatty had an agenda. Oh, yeah. And whatever radical potential that horror has, he wanted to foreclose that with the ending where, you know, the priest saved the day. And so I do think in that way, The Exorcist is kind of this, like, reaction to progressive values at the end of the 60s and early 70s. and. You know, he wanted to create something that was so shocking and so disturbing that by the end, you know, the audience would be grateful that God, God wins in the end. (laughs) To clarify, like what happens in this, because it's like whoever is inside Reagan says at one point, and I'm the devil, quote unquote. So they self-identify as the devil. But then there's this whole thing about like there's a demon called Pazuzu. Like, what's the situation with this? Is this demon pulling rank and pretending to have a more... (laughs) more responsibility than they do pazuzu is some type of like wind demon from like you know i don't know like abyssinian mythology or something like that Mm -hmm. and um the movie begins when father Marin is in iraq i believe Mm -hmm. he's like on an archaeological dig Good for him. He's got his yeah. Rick Steves money belt on. Yeah, he's in his khakis and his <laughs> his archaeological garb, <laughs> the anthropologist garb. And he like finds a medallion with like St. Peter on it or something. But he also finds some type of like statue of Pazuzu, who is a demon of, you know, some like mythological demon. And he like goes wandering through the city and then somehow finds his way into the desert and it's this giant statue of pazuzu who's like Mm. this winged man beast with wings and he also has a massive heart on with a snake wrapped around it (laughs) i've never noticed that yeah (laughs) just to show how much you cannot see in a movie (laughs) so um there's like a suggestion that you know at the moment when Father Marin is facing off with Pazuzu in the desert. There's also, you know, that's also the moment when the Pazuzu is entering the body of Reagan. It also feels like it's the book trying to have it both ways because yes. it's like fear of a pagan god, but also the devil who is just, you know, you can't do better than the devil. This movie honors a worldview where like anything you feel scared of spiritually is just the devil. Right. Yeah. And you can also, you're kind of situating the devil in like the Middle East in this non-Western um, mind. Naturally. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always been a little like, oh, are they saying it's not the devil? It's this like Eastern monster, you know? And just, right. what is that? You know, what message is that sending? Yeah. Yeah. Like nailing or almost like kind of connecting a classic devil to sort of American fear and xenophobia at this time mm-hmm. and right exactly. and this being you know the place we're getting all our oil from mm-hmm. totally yeah 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 I mean I think people forget that the movie opens in the Middle East with a with a like a call to prayer yeah it starts off looking like Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah in an amazing yeah. way it's very appealing to American audiences if you're trying to scare us to be like what if something scary came from far away scary things mm. don't come from inside America they come from outside of America famously, according to our belief system. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like I've always kind of interpreted The Exorcist and the time in which it premiered as this moment where the horror 
as depicted on the screen, was switching from this like fear of external horror, mm. like fear of the aliens coming in or, you know, mm. like they're like 50s is a lot of like alien sci-fi horror movies. And then, you know, as you get into the late 60s and early 70s, there's lots of movies about this horror that's like within the individual mm. body, mm-hmm. you know, like Rosemary's Baby. Mm. There's that movie, It's Alive. Oh there's God, like, yeah. you know, The Exorcist, you know, a lot of movies about it's the body, it's internal. Yeah. And so I've always kind of thought that reflects this like, fear that there's something wrong inside America now, you know, maybe something wrong with this liberalized culture, you know, something wrong with our youth who are Mm -hmm. becoming these kind of like directionless, overly liberal, drug-addled hippies, you know, (laughs) like this fear that it's now not coming from, you know, Russia or, you know, from Europe or from some far, far away. It's coming from within. But then if you think about the fact that the exorcist begins in a foreign country and that you can maybe trace the demon there, that like troubles that idea a little bit. Um, but I think both are at play probably. Yeah. And also, and maybe also like the fear that the, the fear kind of, which is always with us to some extent that like the youth are up to things that are scary to us, but also what if they're right? Like, Oh my God, Mm -hmm. what if they're right? Which we're absolutely going through, I think in a big way now where people today are like, you know what I'm scared of? I'm afraid of my child's gender. And it's like, are you afraid of that? What about not to boss you around, but like, there are so many better fears to have, you know, like climate change or microplastics or frogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Teenagers always, it, some of them manage to make even good ideas sound sort of um, over the top the way they describe them. But there's always, I think, a lot of real insight and a lot of clear headedness about just what actually makes sense. They know what they need in many ways. And I think that scares us. And the idea of you know, that this movie is able to execute so elegantly this thing of like, what if the children are right? And it's like, no, they're not. They're just, you know, getting possessed by the devil. And we have right. to forcibly eject the devil and then get our sweet girl back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so maybe now would be a good time to like, talk about what happened when people actually went to the theater and saw this movie? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. What, uh, what does happen? The myth that I have encountered is that the movie was so terrifying that people fainted. They had seizures. They had heart attacks. They had miscarriages. That people were so terrified that theaters were keeping smelling salts on hand to like revive anyone who fainted. That there Where do were you even get smelling salts. <laughs> is what I want to know. That there were you know ambulances queued up outside of theaters to like take anyone who had some medical incident to the hospital from the theater. You know these are the stories that. I've heard over the years. And so, yeah, there's definitely reason to be skeptical of them. Yeah. A lot of those stories about, you know, the really intense like bodily reactions, I think do stem from this one article in the New York Times. Oh, not the New York Times. Yeah. So the headline is, they wait hours to be shocked. Um, And it it was published January 27th, 1974. So the movie had been out for about a month. And so, yeah, it's this one reporter who was going, you know, to see the movie and she just is kind of talking about what she saw and what she experienced and what she was told. So, Mm. you know, she Mm -hmm. reports on seeing people standing outside in like the winter cold. But then, you know, she kind of features this one interview she had with someone who worked at the theater. She calls them a guard. Mm. He is saying, you know, moviegoers are vomiting. 
Others faint. Others just leave the theater, nauseous and trembling. And then he says, several people had heart attacks. One woman, even, had a miscarriage. (laughs) Okay, so classic, you know, shaky reporting. It's according to this one guy. Well, Sid said that there were several heart attacks. And it's like, God knows the 70s were a freewheeling time, I guess. But if I were running a theater that multiple people had heart attacks in, I would, like, close it to see if there was a gas leak or something like that. (laughs) Right, exactly. And one woman even had a miscarriage. Like, how do you know she had a miscarriage? How does he know? Especially because this was a time when women really kind of didn't talk about miscarriage not to make this too sad but like yeah you want to be running out of the theater oh i'm having a miscarriage you know like and she also talks about some like what was going on at some other theaters but it's all coming from people who worked at the theaters and part of me wonders Mm -hmm. like maybe like these theater owners have an incentive to play up these stories because they want people to keep coming to the movie. Right. And also then I would wonder like how many theater employees are teenagers who are just like, you know, making stuff up for fun. Right. Yeah. So yeah, she talks to these people who work at the theaters and she's also, you know, in this article talking to people who've seen the movie and are saying, you know, yeah, I lost my appetite from watching it, Mm. that they were, you know, utterly terrified. But she also talks about people walking out of the theater laughing and smiling and talking about what a good time they had. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think she's representing like the full spectrum of responses that you could possibly have to the movie. You know, she's not necessarily endorsing the idea that everyone was vomiting all over the place so you know maybe you have to like be skeptical of some of these stories i think that's true but also there is some evidence that that really 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 was happening Mm -hmm. you can find on youtube this news report from cbs about you know the cultural impact of the exorcist in 1974 and you know you hear people's stories you hear people talking about it and like there is such real fear in their voices so I do have, if if I send you a video, do you want to watch it? Yeah, I would love that. Let's do it. Oh, yeah, this is great. Okay, one, two, three. That didn't scare me. I just, I don't know what happened. I just fainted. It was frightening. Then she turned her head around. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's probably the grossest thing I've ever seen. It's weird. She turned her head around. (laughs) She turned her head around. It's not that bad. Carl was so scared the bed was shaking and like her back. And then when her voice changed, my God, I've never done anything like it. Did you see the part where she turns her head around? Not, not yet. I'm not gonna see it either. It's gross. What is that? Yeah. I mean, that is one of the most grossest movies. And then we have footage of somebody who has fainted. Yeah, and the or at least you know collapsed. The ushers in their dapper red coats saving her. It is one of the most grossest movies in the world. It is. It's it's really gross. It's a gross ass movie. Yeah. You know, you can see the way it's like deeply, deeply unsettling people. That's so interesting. And there's like photographic evidence of people fainting. Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, I think it freaked people out and they had never seen anything like this before. And maybe people weren't having heart attacks or miscarriages. But they sure were collapsing they were, sometimes. Yeah, they were collapsing. I mean, it actually makes me think of Beatlemania, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like part of it, it is the Beatles. Like the the thing like is truly like exciting and new and like 
you know, and it like brings people together in a way that sort of causes our our reactions and emotions to kind of reverberate more between each other. But also the thing of like, I think people need social permission to have like huge embodied reactions to things. Yes, yes. There's this quote, let me just try to find it, this amazing quote from the film scholar Charles Derry from his book, Dark Dreams. And he says, in an era when acts of violence in the form of killings in Vietnam, live riots and assassinations were watched daily over long periods on the evening news and our responses to death had become complacent and anesthetized. Going to the exorcist and throwing up reaffirmed our ability to be revolted, our ability to feel. Thus, the vomit of the spectators became a valid aesthetic response to the world around them. That's so true. But you're like not allowed to do that about the news because you have to like cook dinner. And there's also the issue of (laughs) reports of people requesting exorcisms after seeing the movie or like wanting to join the Catholic Church. Um, Mm -hmm. And there was a news report about that as well um, in the New York Times. And again, it's just, you know, interviews with pastors and priests saying, you know, a lot of terrified teenagers are coming to the church saying they can't sleep and they're seeking guidance. Mm-hmm. Again, this is like a news report of people just telling stories. You know, I don't know if there's actually data of like, was there really an increase in people, you know, turning to the church for solace? But at least in these priests' <laughs> storytelling, there was. It, it makes sense to me, that especially coming out of this era of kind of incredible repression for teenagers and adolescents that like, you know, that something is wrong, that society doesn't have language to address. And if like an exorcism or a demon, like becomes part of your vocabulary, like, I don't know, it makes sense to me that people would attach to that, not because it was what they needed, but because they needed something. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. And of course, like any, if you're a priest getting interviewed about it, you're like, yeah, there is an increased demand for God. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, critics were split and I think the Catholic Church was split as well. Hmm. I think, you know, the Catholic Church had issues with some of the more like sacrilegious parts of the movie, you know, the crucifix masturbation. Mm -hmm. I think they had issues with it. But I think overall, they kind of liked the message. And so, you know, I, I would have to re-listen to your um, episode about the production code, but um, The Exorcist is premiering post the production code ending in this new era of ratings. It was rated mm-hmm. R, but I think at this time the Catholic Church was also still doing their ratings. Mm. And so mm-hmm. sometimes they would call a film condemned. They would, that was their rating, C for <laughs> condemned. And they didn't condemn The Exorcist. They said, we recommend with some reservations or recommend with caution. Huh. Wow. So it wasn't actually um, forbidden by the Catholic Church. Right. They kind of said, we've got some reservations about it, but go see it if you're curious, <laughs> which is pretty interesting. Which makes sense because the message, you know, it's it's ultimately very pro them and it's showing yeah. them as the antidote to all the, the awful stuff. Yeah, I didn't expect to learn today that people really were responding in, you know, not exactly all of the ways that we claim in legend but that the exorcist like did have a like a physical effect on a surprising number of people who saw it and i and that's not making a claim that's hard to believe it makes sense that it was affected people on that level because it's like you know there was all this hype and all this mythology around it that was just kind of hot air but that it primed people to maybe allow themselves to just kind of surrender to to the feeling Totally. Yeah. 
what what do you feel like you've learned if not like in in an the entirety of what you've learned, like what comes to mind at this moment? I mean, I think when I was writing this book, I had to look really, really closely at the way we depict young women in particular in movies and kind of think about how those depictions have shaped my perception of myself and like my understanding of myself Mm -hmm. and, you know, my mom's understanding of herself and how, you know, some of the internalized sexism that she experience seeing the exorcist in 1973 was kind of passed on to me as kind of this like Mm -hmm. generational story and so I don't know I think when we look at Reagan the character of Reagan we see a girl who's like angry and loud-mouthed and outrageously sexual but it's like a sexuality that's somehow like not her own you know it's devoid of her own desire you know she's being like sexual but it's not her she has no agency in the matter no subjectivity as a character she's kind of empty you know we don't really see her inner life Mm -hmm. and I think through like researching this book and watching the movie a lot I've come to like feel a lot of empathy for the character of Reagan Mm -hmm. and also to think more deeply about some of the implications of what showing young girls in this way does to your own self-perception my own Mm self-perception I think in a way, The Exorcist, it's a very like frightening depiction of girlhood. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I also kind of started to relate to the way it, de- it depicts girlhood and how how hard and lonely it can be. All of our horror concepts in some way reflect the more mundane fears of our lives. And we deserve to take those seriously. Yeah. And I think, you know, The Exorcist shows female anger, female sexual desire as this very like monstrous, terrifying thing that has to be like controlled and, you know, quieted down, tamped down. And, you know, we have to return the possessed little girl to her original innocent state. But, you know, I also think there's ways to look at Reagan and kind of see her as an awesome heroine who's fearlessly sexual and unapologetically angry. Um, And she's going to spit in the face of all the priests and all the men that are trying to control her. Right. And like the secret of girlhood and and womanhood and really adolescence is like, I don't have a devil inside me. This is just me and you have to deal with it. Yeah. And like, you know, and part of it is the kind of the adolescent experience of like power beyond your control and emotion beyond your control. But also like the part of me that you're scared of is the part of me that is good. Right. Is so often also true. Yeah. What a wonderful exorcist we've had today (laughs) for people who can't remember what was said to them an hour ago, which is certainly what I'm like. What is your book called and where can people find it? My book is Night Mother, A Personal and Cultural History of the Exorcist. And you can find it wherever you find your books, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Little free library, independent bookstore. But yeah, it's it's such a beautifully written book. Um, I'm so happy that we are having our half centennial for the exorcist yes 50th anniversary we're in it Mm. it's a very powerful time and that was our episode Thank you so much to you for listening. Thank you to Marlena Williams for being an amazing guest and writing an amazing book, Night Mother, Go Find It. 
Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for editing. Thank you so much to Tiny Carolyn Kendrick for producing. Happy New Year. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs>